The last guy got out of Libya uh, almost 13 hours to the exact T from when it started. That's why we had the name 13 hours. Um, the key thing to take away from it is we didn't do it with any help from anywhere else. We did it because there were six of us that chose not to lose, to never give up, to stay in the fight. No matter how bad life is, what kind of pile of crap it's given you in the last hour, the last 20 minutes, the last 10 years of your life, you have a choice to do what you want from that point on, and that's either stay in the fight or don't. If you want to stay in the fight, you got to stay in the fight. And that means putting everything into it. This country right now, we're kind of down on our knees a little bit, it seems like, right? Seems like not everybody really believes in what we fought for, what you guys believe in. But does that matter what they do or how they do things are going to affect us? It's a matter of if we decide to stay in the fight. Welcome to season four of the Right Idea podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is Fight for America. In this eighth episode of season four, we feature an interview with Mark Geist. Mark is the best-selling co-author of 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi. He's also a Marine Corps veteran, a former police officer, and a security consultant. Our No Better Friend Corp team was honored to host Mark and Nina for our Fight for America rally on Veterans Day in 2021, where about 500 people came to hear his story. In today's episode, Mark talks about his background and what led him into public service. He talks about the Shadow Warrior Project, which he founded with his wife, Crystal, to create a better everyday life for as many American security contractors and their families as possible. And he also talks about his firsthand account of what happened in the attack on Benghazi on September 11, 2012. Mark is credited with saving 25 people in the attack on Benghazi. Today's discussion is an important one in order to find out what truly happened on that day. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and I hope that you take something away from it. This is the Right Idea Podcast. So welcome to the Right Idea Podcast. We're here in Nina, Wisconsin. I'm here with Mark Geist, fellow Marine Corps veteran, and we are just after the birthday. Happy birthday, Marine. Hey, happy birthday. And happy Veterans Day. Yes, Back it to is. back. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, you know, Marine Corps birthday first, though. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Marine Corps birthday first. So my Novembers are fascinating because my, my non-Marine Corps birthday is November 1. Okay. Then I roll to November 10 and then I hit Veterans Day. So yeah. kind of like bam, bam, bam. It's like always like a good start to the month of November. It is. So, yeah. yeah. Keeps me busy. So That's awesome. Well, we're thrilled to have you, Nina. Um, Thank you. You're in, a, you're in a couple hours after the podcast. We're going to go out. We expect hundreds of people here tonight. Uh, this is the second of our big Fight for America rallies. We had a big one in Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee area, West Dallas, with about 1,000 people. Okay. Uh, last week, we expect hundreds tonight here in Nina. We're excited to have you come here. And the whole theme of this is talking to our audiences around the state of Wisconsin. It's in keeping with an advertising campaign we're doing to say, look, let's fight for this country. Get people involved and like, give them a good positive message about why this is worth fighting for. Part of that means talking about what the alternative is and the challenges we face. Now, again, I always want our audience to leave enthused and, and given that kind of next step forward. But I think it's important to talk about the challenges we face. But I first want to talk about what brought you into public service. You signed on the dotted line, joined the United States Marine Corps. Let's start the story there or before, if, if that's better. What leads you there? Um, you know, I think what really, I mean, I grew up in a small town, eastern Colorado, uh, People always ask where it's at, and I said, you know, where the buffalo roam. That, that's where the, that's <laughs> where I grew up is where the buffalo roam. It's, I mean, it's it's out in the plains. It's uh, short grass prairie, yep. but uh, you know, farming and ranching that kind of stuff. And yep. I was either going to be a cowboy and work on ranches or be in join the Marine Corps. And yeah. um, you know, because my grandfather was a World War II vet. Uh, had five Purple Hearts, a Silver wow. Star, Bronze Star. I mean, he was really my hero. Wow. Um, and then I had three uncles. That served in the military, two in the Navy, one in the Marine Corps. Okay. And uh, those, both, all three of them served during Vietnam. My uncle in the Marine Corps did two and a half tours over there. Um, did 10 years in the Marine Corps. So okay. I think that was probably one of the big influences. Those things there are what really, I think, gave me that sense of service, that sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself. Because that's, you know, the example and just the talk around the dinner table right. is... Uh, 
is what was there. Right. And, uh, you know, I think in a lot of small towns, it's like that. It's being a part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that's what leads a lot of us into that kind of into the military or into law enforcement. And as for me, I mean, it was both military, then into law enforcement um, and then into private contracting as well. Awesome. And I, yeah, and I want to talk about all those steps as you go through. And yeah, you know, and I, um, we had a conversation with another one of our speakers here tonight just a bit ago, uh, Greg Stubbe, Army vet. Yeah. Great, great guy. He is. And uh, he, of course, gave me the obligatory Marine Corps uh, jokes about eating crayons and all that good stuff, too. But one of the things he actually called out was something that really drew me to the Marine Corps is the ethos of being a Marine. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I love and appreciate all the services. They do different stuff. We give, a, we give each other a hard time because we've earned the right to do that. But I respect their capabilities 100%. But what I loved about the Marine Corps is they're like, hey, give it a shot. If you want to give it a try, we'll let you give it a try. And we'll kick you out if we don't think you make the cut. Well, and you, you know, you, and I always loved, uh, I know Greg pretty well. Yep. And so I love giving him heck too. Yeah, right. That. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, you ask somebody who's in the Army, if they served in the Army, you know, what are you? Oh, I served in the Army, right. or I served in the Air Force, or I served in the Navy. If you ask a Marine, you know, what are you? Yep. I'm a Marine. I'm a Marine. <laughs> That's it. And that, that goes back to what you said, the ethos. It's, yeah, I mean, right. um, you know, it's a small fighting force, and uh, it is the way it is for a reason. Um, right, right. And, and having worked around all the different branches, uh, and since Benghazi, you know, I, I talk to a lot of them, and uh, they love... Most of the special ops units love having the Marines as their backup yep. because they know that if they call for help, they're coming. They don't get caught up in the political stuff or the right. politics. Ask it going up the chain of command. They just go ask for permission later, typically. Right. No, and that's exactly right. you got to accomplish the mission. you got to take care of your troops, but you do it in that order. And, uh, and you're right. And the, the special forces have a different function. They bite off different chunks of things to eat and to destroy. Because that's the way they're designed. Mm-hmm. The Marine Corps is designed large scale to destroy the enemy, yeah. and, and that's those two things can work together very well. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned well. before I asked you some more questions, but you grew up in Colorado, ranching family. It's got to be something that these things tie together. So I did not grow up in agriculture, but um, took time off of college for about a year and moved out to Wyoming. I worked on a small mom and pop cattle ranch, not not a dude ranch, like the real thing. Right. And uh, man. Great opportunity to toughen me up before I joined the Marine Corps. Like, yeah. didn't do it my whole life. I don't claim I did, but the time I did, like, you learn what it means to like earn a living and mm-hmm. to do it, and you see the inside of the business of agriculture and how tough it is. Yeah, it's, especially for your mom and pop. It's not, yeah. you know. Yep. Um, I mean, my dad to keep me busy and out of trouble when I was sixteen um, got me a job working for one of the um, harvest crews. Okay, so. Because back then, you could get your Class C license, um, and they didn't have the CDL yet. That's what your Class C was, right. because it was, you know, and, and as a, working on farms and ranches, you had to drive big trucks. So I, you know, already knew how to do all that, and I pulled a half a million dollar combine um, for three months from Colorado to Oklahoma, all the way up to Montana and back on a wheat harvest crew lived in a school bus okay you know i mean so that was my those were my summers it was yeah. working for a living i mean right but uh it's good training yeah it is it's right. it's it's a good experience it's getting out there and uh you know this day and age it seems like we because i sit there and i've got uh my son was when he was 16 i mm-hmm. was like yeah i don't know if i'd send him out like that. <laughs> but, we all have those thoughts right you look at your kid you're like ah i did it i don't quite know but yes, these are the kind of things that form you and make you into what you end up being able to do in the future. Right. right? So, so you joined the, what year did you join the Marine Corps? Um, I joined when I was still a senior in high school. I joined okay. in, in 1983. Okay. Is when I joined on the delayed entry. I went to boot camp ten days after I graduated high school. Okay. Uh, in 19 June 10th of 1984. Okay. And what MOS did you do? Um, I went in as infantry. I mean, okay. shoot, I was I was hooked there. I could go play soldier and yeah. jump out of airplanes and shoot <laughs> things and blow things up. That's all the recruiter had to tell me, and I'm like, awesome, done. Sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah. on one. Yeah, and I got I mean, that's and I joke about it, but I, for the next 12 years, I got to be that. Yeah, you know, and I mean, be one of the, with you know, be a part of one of the best fighting forces in the world, or be in the best fighting force right. in the world, and. Uh, just run around serving the country. I mean, right. it's phenomenal. And with um, and with a group of people that, 
again, I'm not pretending, and I don't think any of us would. Not every Marine's perfect, not every soldier's perfect. No, we get it. But with people that have that esprit de corps and that ethos and who care and yeah. who do, like you said, want to be part of something bigger, it's it's a thing that you'll never quite experience again in the same way after. Yeah, that. you don't. I mean, the closest thing that would ever come to it is maybe uh, organized sports sometimes. Right. You know, that idea of teamwork and being there for each other and always having each other's backs. But take what that is in sports, even in, co- you know, in high school and college sports and amp that up about a thousand times. And yeah. that's what it is in the Marine Corps. 100%. And it really is. It's accomplish the mission and then bring everybody home. Yep. And if you can't because God intercedes and you can't bring everybody home, then uh, you do the best you can and yeah. to trying to. That's so, exactly it. 100%. So you're, you're in for 12 years. So, mm-hmm. um, And then talk me through the path. Of, well, first, actually, before we do that, what were some of the places the Marine Corps sent you? Um, I, I did a lot of different things because I started out in the infantry. Um, I was, uh, you know, the Marine Corps had started up their... Uh, Security Forces Battalion. Okay. Um, I, me and two other sergeants and a gunny worked up in the north e- northwest, up in uh, Washington State area. We okay. trained, did counterterrorism training and uh, anti-terrorism training for the Navy and other security forces up there, and did that for three years during the first Gulf War. Okay. Um, and then uh, after that, um, I lat moved over into the interrogation translation field. Okay. So. Gotcha. Um, I had taken that D-Lab test. I didn't even realize I took it. And they're like, hey, you want to come over? I'm like, sure, why sure. not? Yeah. <laughs> Sounded like fun. I mean, yeah. And part of it was I really wanted to, if I was going to stay in the Marine Corps or not, I wanted to get into the intel field. I liked doing that. And then okay. I also wanted, if I was going to get out ever, I wanted to go work for uh, the CIA. Okay. So that was always kind of my next step. And uh, Gotcha. Uh, so did you do an MOS transfer then? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Got it. Yeah. So Intel the rest of the way. And then, so that brings you to what, 95 uh, you said? 96. 96. Got okay. out in 96. Got it. And talk us through from there. Um, what, what you know, you I got doing? out, Me, I was, my first wife, uh, we had just adopted our son. And, uh, you know, I had been, the as an interrogator, we were deploying a lot. <laughs> we'd do either a float and then we'd come back and we were doing flyaways three yeah. months here, three months there. So about six, eight months out of the year. Um, we were deploying, so okay. I didn't, with, you know, with a brand new baby boy, I didn't want to be gone that much. I didn't want to be that absent father. So right. we got out and, uh, I become a cop because okay. they don't work that much. <laughs> They're never <laughs> away from home. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. And, yeah, I don't know if that's the ideal transfer, but yeah. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I become a deputy sheriff and, uh, okay. um, where about where in, Colorado. in Colorado and, okay. yeah, just, it's up in the mountains east to, or west of Colorado Springs. Okay. Um, and, uh, Started out as a road deputy for about three, four months, and then took over. Uh, I was uh, promoted to uh, an investigator for crimes against children and okay. crimes against women. That's a tough and job. It is. It takes a psychological toll, I'm sure. It does, but it was probably one of the most, um, I mean, satisfying, I can't say enjoyable, but satisfying jobs because, you know, my goal was to make sure that the kids never had to tell their story again in court. Right. And so that meant making sure the interviews were done right and then making sure the interrogations were done right. And, uh, you know, if I could get somebody talking, if I could get them talking, I knew I was going to get a confession out of them. Right. And I knew that if I did that, that was my goal. If I did that, then I knew that the kids were, you know, they're going to plea bargain out and the kid don't have to go and testify and they get on with healing. Right. Right. So. Yeah. So satisfying work, but difficult work. Yeah. And how long did you do that? Uh, about three years. Okay. And mm-hmm. then I uh, took over... I got a job as chief of police in a small town uh, about 15 miles from where I grew up. Okay. Um, did that for about three years. It was it was interesting because it was a whole different aspect of law enforcement. I mean, it was a town of, I mean, it was a podunk town. It was Barney Fife, 1160. <laughs> I think 1260 people is the average, plus or minus 30 people for 100 years. That's okay. how. That, I mean, <laughs> that's that town. But you had the. You got to be with the people. You got to meet the people. I mean, but you know, and um, what you ran into is a lot of people that were elderly. They didn't have just a whole different avenue of law enforcement. Right. Not as much crime, but more still taking care of the people, helping people. Yeah, still yeah. helping people. And uh, and I got on the volunteer fire department when I was there because I didn't have enough to do as chief of police, and <laughs> um, I just like medicine and all of that. So I did that until. Uh, um, 
Oh, me and city council kind of had a disagreement with okay. uh, how law enforcement should be enforced, I guess, is the best way to put it. Tell, I me, it tell was, me more about that. If you're, well, I kind of figured it was supposed to be fair. It didn't matter yeah. what your economic status yeah. was or who you were. Um, yeah. Uh, there was uh, our, uh, we didn't have a police commissioner. It was, there was three of the uh, board members that were on the police committee and okay. one of them uh, had showed up drunk to council meeting. Now, I didn't see him drive there, mm-hmm. but I knew their car was there and uh, I told one of their friends that they better not let him drive home drunk because uh, if they did, then I was going to have, I mean, they're going to put me in a spot to make yeah. me do my job. Right. And he's like, well, why you got to do that? I said, like, because it's my job. And people get killed that way. Yeah. Right. And uh, so they didn't go over very well with that individual and he was had deep deep roots in the town so okay um this is very marine but this is the right way to do it and so i'm going to do it and yeah. if you want to take action against it then we can talk about that yeah later. so i ended up leaving that and then started my own business doing bounty hunting in pueblo colorado okay um so uh did that for about three years until does that take you all over the country I mean, uh, most of it was local, local most stuff, of yeah. it was local that's um i didn't really do the inter- the national stuff okay um i was looking at getting into that and then when the war kicked mm-hmm. off in uh 2001 that's really about the time i was transitioning and i started looking at how to get back into the war um you know i, I did a couple years with 19th group okay um National Guard, which is Special Forces, but right. I never—I don't really talk about that much because I never got uh, um, tabbed or anything. Okay. I didn't go get sol- through selection or anything. And sure. um, but uh, then, and because I didn't have an Army MOS, the EXO uh, didn't want me to go over to the war. Okay, um, which I guess kind of worked out and took me another year or so. And in 2003, I started working as a private security contractor overseas. Okay. Were you Iraq, Afghanistan? Um, mostly Iraq initially. Okay. Um, I worked uh, protecting State Department personnel okay. um, for about six months and then uh, moved from that to uh, training Iraqi SWAT teams okay. um, and emergency response units and did that for about five years and then uh, got a job, another contract uh, as a security advisor to Dr. Ayat Alawi, which was one of the former prime ministers of Iraq. Right. Um, and so I was kind of his security advisor and made sure that his security detail was ran right. Okay. Um, me and a South African, and uh, we lived out in town with uh, three Kurdish guys. So. Did you actually live in town? Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, just outside the green zone, outside of Black Gate. <laughs> <coughs> it was pretty right. interesting. Yeah, I got to say, do you pull your own security in that environment? Do you have do you have posted security? Um, we have uh, some Iraqis that were... Okay. That, because that was his compound oh, okay. and we were kind of there but it really was it wasn't a compound I mean you could walk in and out of it as you did but yeah as you know if you you know the neighborhoods are their own security yeah and right. they you know they all look out for people who are not supposed to be there and uh, right but uh, no that's a good point I think uh, that's one of the things I try to impress upon people that um, imagine a war is happening in your neighborhood and imagine how people are going to react. If they have agency and ability, they're going to fight back. If they can't, they're going to figure out ways to take uh, underhanded shots at the people that they want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. They're going to know who should be there. They're going to know who shouldn't be there. And yep. they're going to react accordingly. And it was the same thing over there. Um, we didn't always understand those dynamics uh, because we weren't embedded necessarily the way that you were. Right. But they knew those dynamics. Yeah. And yeah. It's happening in their backyard. Yep. And they yeah. Know you know who's going to be there and not supposed to be there. and Right. You know, and, and I think uh, one thing that was, in, especially early on, I think it was one of the things that was hard for people to understand about the, just the Arab culture in general is you can tell by what they're wearing and the length of either a shirt or different items that they're wearing that tell you who they're affiliated with. Yeah. But right. if you're not raised in that or really study that, right. most of us don't know. You know, you don't realize that. And that was as, in Afghanistan. It was the same in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those other countries, uh, you know, you could always kind of tell the yeah. different affiliations. And and they could pick you out if yeah. you were trying to be clandestine and uh, <laughs> not wearing the right thing in the right. And, and it, it's funny because it was, I mean, like over in Pakistan and Afghanistan, it's they have the man jammies, yep. what we call them, you know, and the shirt that hangs down. Where it lands on your knee tells them where, what, where you're affiliated with. Right. And so if you're in one area and saying this, then... It kind of gives kind you of away. gives away, right? Yeah. What um, I wanted to ask: so you did training of uh, Iraqi army or uh, SWAT teams? SWAT teams. Okay, yeah. got it. So like municipal level 
mm-hmm. police and okay. Yeah. What was that experience like? So I mean, I interacted with IA, but um, um it was interesting. I mean, yeah. you know, it depended on which groups you got. Yep. Um, I mean, you know, if I was working with any of the Kurdish police force, I mean, those guys were squared away. I mean, they, you know, the Kurds are Kurds before they're um, Iraqis. Right. Or they're Kurds before they're Syrians or Iranians. I mean, they, they're, you know, they have a saying that the only friend they've ever had is the mountains. Yeah. Because that's where they can always go to hide. Right. And regroup if they're being attacked. And, uh, um you know, that's their loyalty was that. Yep. And so their loyalty was, hey, can we, we want all the training we can get. And they were pretty, they were, they were good. They paid attention. They made sure, I mean, their chief of police, most of the time, whatever town it was, would come down as well okay. just to keep them in line, you know, and, uh, and because of the, again, you know, the nature of how that is over there. I mean, it's yeah. families, towns are brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles for generations yes exactly and so everybody is semi-connected to win through blood in a sense right and so you know you don't want to disgrace the family by being slacking off especially if uh if the uh, matriarch or patriarch is is around watching too right so that's one extreme mm-hmm. Kurds talk about the other extreme well the <laughs> other extreme is that. yeah <laughs> you know um sometimes it was hard to get them to uh <laughs> Um, do jumping jacks the yeah. right way to show I mean, up to clean a rifle, right? To, yeah, right. Because our camp, we had a camp that we had 900 Iraqis on our camp. Oh wow! And we had them separated into three companies because um, that was the emergency response units that worked for this Ministry of Interior. Okay. Um, and they would rotate. One company would be out on leave, and then you would have a company in training, then an operational company. And then they would ro- rotate from one. They'd go from training to operations and operations would go on leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you had them coming in and out, you know. And a lot of them, I mean, there were some really good ones in the, the NCOs, the senior NCOs. I mean, um, they had some great ones there. I mean, sure. you know, I mean, they pulled my butt out of some tight spots several times. Sure. Um, but then your average was there for the paycheck. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's what they were looking for. And that's. Right. And again, it was all a lot of it's who know who you know, what family, yep. what tribe are you from, all affiliations, and so. Uh, um, but you know, and and for us, one of our big worries, as it was with the military, is uh, you know, uh, blue on blue, I guess you could say, sure. or whatever you want to call that. Would, um, but we'd always have two or three uh, instructors standing at the back of the line, and that's one of the first things we'd tell them is. Uh, you know, you, you may get me, but you ain't going to get us all. Yeah. And all of you are going to get got. Yep. So it's, it's, I think it's an important message for people to know that is the dynamic because you don't know who you're talking about 900 people. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's different levels of like allegiance, understanding, nefariousness in there, and they're all armed. And yep. you have to, yeah, send a message like that that, sure, pull the trigger and be ready for what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, and two, you said another important thing, I think important to call out like this is true in Iraq it's true in Afghanistan the view of the world very much uh, through the lens of family and clan yeah not, not not a nation yes and that's one of the problems that we ran into when it came to trying to build military units mm-hmm. trying to sustain a culture that would say that people were ready to sacrifice for the concept of a nation that they likely didn't even understand and yeah that was a tough thing to yeah and and it was a little bit easier i think in Af- in iraq than it was afghanistan because afghanistan is so tribal i mean you, got you know it wasn't 50 you know 30 40 years ago that one side of the mountain that tribe on one side of the mountain was going over raiding the other side right i mean you, bet. you know and a lot of that's the only time they ever saw each other, saw each other. Yeah, right um yeah. you know and that's that that was that was really one of the big difficulties in Afghanistan that uh, I don't think it took a people a long time to understand yes. and comprehend. And then our tactics and our, the way we deal with it from a on the ground to compared to what politicians want and things like that. I mean, you know, because we're there trying to make things better right. as a country. And we're all our people back here are like, hey, it should be working. We're putting all this money. We've got this guy in it. Right. But it's it's so so much different than that. I it mean, really is. No, it, it, you're you're hitting on some very important point, points, and I, I do want to get on to some of the next steps of your career. But it's, 
one of the things I talk about, not to put words in your mouth, is clarity and mission. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be serious about clarity and mission, it's not the minute that you say it out loud and say, we want to make Afghanistan into a Western uh, industrialized nation, that it should be all stop. And we should have said how. Like, if that truly is your mission, yeah. talk to us. Those that were there in both Iraq and Afghanistan, we're going to tell you the reasons that's not going to happen. What is a more likely mission? Yeah, maybe you could, I, I always thought, like, certainly Afghanistan, again, Iraq, like you said, is different. Probably the best case scenario was we could arm local uh, tribes to basically fight back against local threats. Yes. Probably that's about it. Yeah. And anything beyond that was just pie in the sky. Yeah, and I think it should have, I mean, sometimes, it, and I know this goes contrary to what I would say our country as a nation at least is told to think. Mm -hmm. Um we should have used it what we went in there for, and we went after the guys and the, the people that uh, brought hate on us yep. and attacked us and used it as that. And then, it, I mean, and I don't think we should have ever left Bagram or Herat because that gave us a strategic value on the western side of, uh, or I mean on the eastern side of Iran. Right. And on the southern part of uh, Russia. Right. You're no. certainly not going to leave Bagram before you're going to conduct a nationwide extract. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that goes into a whole other thing. I mean, anybody who studied history knows, I mean, all the way, you go all the way back and look at Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And where did he stage his troops prior to going into uh, at, um, Pakistan, which right. didn't exist then, but right. it was all India, right. uh, was Bagram. Yeah. Because it's, a def it's the best and really almost only defendable yeah. large area in that whole country right it's the um, way in and out yeah and yeah. the fact that yes we could we could spend another six hours talking about that oh yeah indefensible illogical and it got people killed that didn't have to die um, well it goes back to what you said clarity of mission right what's our mission is our mission to pull out and if it is is there a time stamp on it mm -hmm. and if you're going to put a time stamp on it then understand what's going to happen if right. you try to meet that. And I think that's, right. you know, I don't know, obviously, because I'm not in Washington, D.C. and those realms, but um, I think that uh, the administration chose, uh, you know, we don't want to be here past the 20th year anniversary. Right. And whatever it takes, we don't care. Right. And, and it got people killed. Yeah. And a whole host of other things. I, I do want to talk <clears throat> about your next steps because it's an important conversation to have. So... You, uh, you're doing the private contracting role. You're yep. providing security for the prime minister. Where do we go from there? What are the next steps? Um, I was working, you know, as I said earlier, I was, I was wanting to go work for the CIA. <laughs> so uh, I had always been trying to get on with there with the OGA program, okay. the um, GRS program. Yep. And uh, um, so I was able to finally get picked up on that. And that's when I started working as a private contractor for them. What year um, was that about? 2009 I okay. think it was Got somewhere it. around there yep um, I think all the years kind of <laughs> melt together yeah <laughs> yeah because I, I started going back and looking at it now from 2003 to 2012 when I was injured it was about nine almost nine and a half years okay I was gone for seven of it I was gonna ask I mean so as in that contracting role you're not on a seven on seven off you mm -hmm. are you're there you can there's usually I don't know that you call them vacation. There's break periods you can build in there. But were you pretty much in country for that whole time? Um, for the most part. I mean, it depends on, like, the State Department contracts. I would work for three months and okay. then have a month off. So it Got was it. like a 100 days on, 105 yeah. days on, and like a 30-day off, 35 yeah. off. Right. Um, and then when I went and worked for the agency, um, it was, I had the choice of doing two on, two off. Okay. And because of the tempo and what we were doing, I, I kind of chose that because I wanted to, that was one reason is so I could be home more. Yeah. And the pay went up. So, right. Um, I mean, when I first went into Iraq, the pay was really high and then yeah. it, that dropped off real quick because, you know, we had an influx of uh, people who were, um, at least, uh, semi-qualified had combat experience. Sure. But then when we got into the GRS side, it was, it, you know, it kicked back up there in those, uh, those good numbers in, uh. But, you know, then I was an independent. I didn't work for a company. Okay. I worked as an industrial, because there's two types of contractors. There's industrial contractors, which means you work for a company who's contracted for a location. Okay. And then there's direct hires, and I was a direct hire, so I got paid directly by the federal government. Okay. I had to cover my own workman's comp if I was going to 
every, you know, I got reimbursed on the contract, but you know how quick they do yeah, that. Right. Um, and I had to pay for my own airfare over okay. and all of that. I mean, to be, to go to work, it cost me 25, almost $30,000 just to go to work. To get there. To get yeah. there. And then you start getting paid when the contract Then I got paid, in. and then it yeah. took them about 45 to 60 days to get you paid back on those first two things. By Sounds that like time, the federal government. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, <clears throat> which really kind of leads into why I started my, you know, one of the reasons why we started our nonprofit. Okay. Tell me about that. Um, you know, after I got injured, it's just, so I, I can't, like, I tell people when they ask where I was at as a contractor, um, and with my military career all the way th- and all of that. I mean, I joke about it. I say if it's the country ended in Stan, I've probably been there. So <laughs> without committing to any single single yeah, country. Right. But, um, you know, I ended up in Benghazi and that's where I got injured um, pretty bad. I um, had about 25 holes in me, blown up three times. Um, and as contractors, we have a workman's comp policy. That is our medical Uh you know, now my first emergency medical, because my first hospital visit was in a, a Libyan hospital with Libyan doctors. Okay. In Tripoli. That's who probably saved my life. Okay. And kind of got all the, I mean, we got all of them stopped, but they're the ones that uh, we put we put um, blockades on the on the squirters, as I say. Yeah. Those things that were squirting. and right. uh, But they're the ones who got them all sewed up. And uh, then I went from there to Lundstall. Okay. And then from Lundstall into um, Walter Reed. Okay. And the only reason all that happened is because uh, I had Secretary Defense designee status. Okay. And a lot of that was because of the, how public everything was. Right. Um, the last thing they wanted me to go, because normally what happens for contractors, if you get injured, you go back home and you go to a local hospital yeah. and you file a workman's comp claim and you it all goes through that. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and your pay, like my pay stopped. I didn't get paid while I was injured. Really? Yeah, my pay stopped the day I left Libya, and that was okay. on the twelfth. Okay. The morning, the evening of the twelfth, I flew out, and so my pay stopped. Um, and now I had to file a workman's comp claim, and that's one thing, you know, for a lot of the military out there, they don't understand is you're not covering all those bills when you're in the military, and they right. wonder why we get paid so well. Right. One is because of our experiences. Yeah. And what we're doing, but two is because we got all these other things we got to cover. I mean, you're being compensated for risk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, right. Um, we didn't get our first workman's comp check until January. So we went from September to January without a paycheck. Okay. And we had to meet our bills still and do all that. And that was difficult. Um, you know, it'd be great if we all, you know, making good money, you put some aside, but we don't do that. I mean, especially when you're doing that kind of job. Right. I mean, right. You right. Know, you're living life to the large. Yeah. And... We know that, and so that's why we started it, because there's too many guys that are getting killed or injured, and their families are struggling, and they're losing their house while they're injured and trying to recover, and, and they still served our country the same way, because right. you know, they're still working in those jobs that typically would be covered by uh, military. In one way, shape, or form. Yeah. Right. So what is the non- they're talking about the mission of the um, and the name? Well, the, the name is Shadow Warriors Project. Okay. It's shadowwarriorsproject.org if you want to find out more about it, okay. and and initially, we started just to focus on the private security contractors, and then, uh, um, and I didn't bring my service dog with me this time because we're traveling again in another day for ten days, going up to Canada for training. But um, okay, it's if I do back-to-back trips, it's kind of hard on her. Yeah, cause a whole another thing. But um, so I got a service dog given to me by a donated to me by another nonprofit, mm-hmm. and so. The areas of when we started looking at that that aren't getting served with this type of dog is uh, our, you know, just your regular um, Joe, your regular military. Yeah. Most of them are having these higher end dogs for the special ops units. And uh, so I just wanted to be able to, I know what my dog did for me and I wanted to pass that on to, you know, give other people who are struggling with uh, um, service related injuries. Right. Both visible and non-visible. Right. um, a chance at it and so we started doing that and we give away about anywhere between five and ten dogs a year outstanding um and that really kind of bugged me though because that's all i'm helping is five or ten guys and so we this year during covid um with everything the speaking kind of stuff because that's the other thing i do to make a living is mm-hmm. public speaking that kind of died off 
which let me focus more on Shadow Warriors Project, and we uh, started a canine therapy program. Okay. Similar to a, um, a lot of guys out there probably, and a lot of combat vets know about the equine therapy programs mm-hmm. that are around the country. Um, I grew up riding horses, and I know how they affect us, but I also had dogs my whole life, right. and I know how they do. And my wife had brought up said, why don't we do the same thing as that with uh, with dogs and so uh, outstanding. We kind of decided to start doing that, and and we're kind of faith based. I mean, I shouldn't say kind of. We are faith based in our because um, our canine therapy program is introducing guys to the Lord. We introduce them to the dogs. We use the dogs to help them learn how to manage their stress, and then we do peer to peer counseling. Uh, everybody has to tell their story, right? And not just their combat story; it's their life story because so many of us. You know, we joined the military because we're either running from something or to something. <laughs> you know, we're looking at being a part of something bigger or we're running away from trauma that we had as kids. And, right. you know, and, and when you show up with trauma and then you get a, you're looking for that family and you get that family with the unit or with the military, then your brothers and sisters are injured. It really yeah. brings back a lot of that other stuff, I think. And uh, so we're problem. really, and that way, you know, we can run, I mean, Depending on funding through donations, we can probably do a hundred guys a year. That's outstanding. Putting them through that. Now, not everybody gets a dog, but they get the the treatment, right? Which is more important, and then they become part of the family too. Well, I was gonna say, and that, I think it's an important <clears throat> thing too. We have a group uh, that we partner with in the state called Sierra Delta that also works with getting dogs to veterans and does great work. BJ Ganim, he's been on the the podcast, and um, but it's that yes, it could be injury, it could be just end of time of service or whatever the case is. But you leave and then you lose that family for some amount of time, right? It'd be hard yeah. to kind of regroup it. And you and I have talked before about like VFW and Legion, they play a role, but there's many young vets that aren't a part of that. Um, and groups like yours are out there actually kind of recreating, both in, in terms of like providing like just sound therapy and partnership with yeah. dogs, right? But also to that, that family and that camaraderie again, which is very important. Yeah, let them know that they're not alone. I mean, right. we just had. Uh, the other night I got a call and from a wife and uh, her husband had she had to take him in for emergency surgery he had some of and it's you know some of our injuries they come back right to haunt you later right and so he had to go in for emergency surgery she didn't know what to do she, he was a recipient of our one of our dogs okay so we're able to help with all of that you know and, and so they're still part of the family and it's right. still got that brotherhood that that family that you're missing right back in being part of that unit Right, and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Getting people up and moving the next step of life. Yeah. So you talked about the injury in Benghazi. I want to talk about the. I want to talk about what happened on your ground level view. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about to the extent you're comfortable doing it. The the way it was portrayed in the national media, what was said and not said, and how our government handled that entire situation. I would love to hear your perspective. <laughs> I know our listeners would too. Um, you know, it's, uh, and I, I caveat everything starting out. I worked, I mean, I was a private contractor for the U S government for the CIA. I mean, I was the lowest rung, you know, like here's where whales are. <laughs> We're below that. We're where whale shit is. I mean, they hire us for a reason, you know? Um, and I understand that. So, and for me, you know, everything that didn't happen that could have happened or should have happened as in providing support. Um, listening to the guys on the ground, yeah. listening to the experts that you hire to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I did I expect them to send help for me? No, I don't because, I mean, I knew what I was and what I chose to do. But we had an ambassador that was missing. Yeah. That's the direct representative of the president of the United States to that country. And Which was Ambassador Christopher Stevens. Ambassador yeah. Chris Stevens, yeah. Because yeah. we couldn't find it. When our team went over to the consulate... And was able, you know, we had three guys that went through the front gate, two guys that provide cover fire. I was out in town. I had made back and took over security at the annex. Three guys pushed off over 40 armed insurgents. And the reason they did that, because they're well-trained, element of surprise, violence of action. Right. You know? Right. You come through the gate and you start face shooting people. Um makes people hesitant about being involved it does because they haven't had the training and the experience that you have until you see that kind of violence up close you don't understand what it's like yeah and it can shock people into submission and into to your point freezing yep right and they either froze or left yep. and uh you know but 
then they started searching for the ambassador. Um, the next, oh, I think they got over there, they got the call right around 9.30. I mean, depending on whose watch you were looking at, whether it was 9.30, 9.35, 9.30, 9.40, mm-hmm. you know, by the time they got over there, got into the compound, secured it, was probably um, no later than 10. And from 10 to they got back over to the annex, mm-hmm. um, was around probably one o'clock, 12 something, latter part of 12. Okay. They couldn't find the ambassador. Um, didn't know if he had been kidnapped. So I was gonna ask, so the compound had been breached, but it was not a known breach or? What happened you... is the their, the security team for the ambassador, just um, great guys, Yeah, great guys, but um, got overwhelmed Okay. Because the guys came, you know, they, they didn't do some, in my opinion, they didn't do some things that they should have done just from a security standpoint. Yeah. Um, and part of that was they didn't have enough guys. I mean, it, it was eight acres. Yeah. And they had five guys and cameras to cover eight acres. Yeah, that's extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, right. that's, Marine Corps would probably use a company to cover that much yes, territory. absolutely. I mean. Yes, to properly man it and then yeah. backup positions and yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and all the support that comes with it. And right. So the bad guys, Ansar al-Sharia, came down the front, you know, come down the front. There's, on the outer gates, there is local nationals because okay. that's the first ones that would enter, you know, in any embassy around the country, that's what we have. Right. Um the bad guys come up to them and basically gave them a choice, yeah. live or die. Right. Well, they take off running, they open the gates, and so it wasn't really like they even blew the gates yeah. open. They just walked in. Right. And just immediately overwhelmed the situation. Okay. And this ambassador's guys did what they were trained to do. Yeah. Training at that time was all based on what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq for the last, at that one was 10 years, almost 12 years. Yep. And that was get to your safe room and wait for the cavalry. Okay. Well, one guy went in, got the ambassador, and Sean Smith got into his safe room. The other guys went and got their long guns, got into their safe rooms, yeah. and waited for the cavalry. The unfortunate thing is there's no cavalry in Libya. Yeah. Um, our job wasn't to go over there. Our job was to protect the annex okay. and the 20-odd people that we had there. Um, you know, and now our our annex was maybe the size of a football field. Yep. That was about it. Okay. And uh, that is what really kind of messed things up. And we couldn't, they couldn't find the ambassador for two and a half hours. Um, were they communicating to you? Did you yeah, I was, I was, they were, they were communicating over the radio. Okay. I didn't need to be involved in that. But I was. But you had him on the net. Yeah, so I was, I knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. Um, you know, and now I'm, my worry at that time is if they're coming over to get us yeah. while well, I'm the only one on the rooftop, um, you know, all the guys and gals that are with the agency are trained in rifle and pistol, but that doesn't mean you're a warfighter. Right. And uh, they had other things they needed to be doing and they were working their assets and doing what they do. And uh, they got attacked over at the consulate, another a counter assault. Um, they repelled that, and then they were getting ready to uh, search again for the ambassador. Um, but then they got word that there was another hundred odd uh, bad guys getting ready to counterassault again. So they made the decision to pull back um, to the annex, and okay. so and that's where the State Department guys went out. They ended up turning the wrong way, got caught up in an ambush, did make it back, and then our guys got out just shortly after that and uh, come back and. Uh, came back to the annex and that's when we all just got ready for what we knew was coming because I'm sure they felt, you know, we all expected them and knew that they would follow us, follow them over. Right. Um, if it wasn't us. Right. They followed the state department guys over. Coming and, back to the annex. Right? Yeah. Right. And then from about 1230 quarter to one till 515, 511 actually, uh, 515 is when we had three more attacks at the annex. Uh, pretty kind of, I mean, attack were, Lull attack, lull, and then the last one was a complex attack with uh, indirect fire, which were the mortars. They okay. were uh, 81 millimeter uh, mortars, French mortars, mm-hmm. um, and belt-fed machine guns, RPGs, and uh, AK-47s. So that's the real thing. Yeah. Did they did they locate the mortars? Were they actually? Oh, they were. They yeah. were dialed in. Yeah, they were dead on. Okay. I mean, we had four mortars. First one landed on the outer wall. 
The next one landed on top of the roof, about 15 feet to my right. Um, right up, you know, you know how the walls up there. They got always every house in the Middle East has a rooftop, a flat roof, and then yep. it's got a wall around it, and it right. landed right there. Um, and then two more landed in it. First, people thought they were bracketing us, but it was just a, you know, any, if you anybody's dealt with mortars, it's a brand new mortar pit. Every time you fire it, it settles right. a little bit more, and it just dropped naturally, walked it back into us. Yeah. And I took uh, shrapnel from all three of those that hit okay. the rooftop, and the first one killed Ty, went through me and killed Ty. Second one um, got Glenn, and both of them also, all three of them, and the first one that hit the outer wall got Dave as well. Dave was a State Department guy that was up in the opposite corner okay. as us, and he was he got injured pretty bad. And the, uh, in addition to seeing friends, colleagues losing their life before your eye, the indirect, the impact of indirect fire psychologically is you just it could be coming any second. And you oh don't yeah. Know when. Yeah. And it seems like it's raining down and hell's coming down on yep. you and you just don't. Yeah, you bright, don't know. brightest light and loudest sound I've ever heard. Yeah. I, can I mean, it, it was like a, looked like the sun. Right. Um, right. And uh, now at this point, this is all up on the net. Uh huh. Are you calling? So calls are going out saying we need reinforcement. Yep. What's happening? Um, well, and I'm, I'm going to assume, but I, I mean, knowing how it works, yeah, that we made, we made our request early on what we wanted. And we would relay to the guys downstairs who are relaying to wherever. And I know right. it was getting back to, uh, you know, we know that it got back to Washington, D.C. Right. Um, at a minimum to the State Department's uh, comm center. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, basically they didn't send anything. Or yeah. if they did, it got turned around. Because, I mean, since then, I've obviously, it's a small world. And that was a big thing. I've talked to a bunch of people yeah. who... Um, Say that certain things happened that, uh, and people got relieved of duty and lost promotions and taken over commands mm -hmm. um, because of what they did. What were the closest assets that could have been moved in? Do you know? Um, there's a lot. I mean, as you know, there's a lot there, and and I understand why some of them didn't. And mm -hmm. I don't think it was nefarious. I mean, I got. I don't think that stuff wasn't sent nefariously. This is one of the questions I want to ask you. Yeah. I think it was when you have, and this is unfortunate with technology this day and age, mm -hmm. people in D.C., politicians in D.C. Mm -hmm. and generals are got live feeds to what's going on on the ground. Right. And they're trying to make decisions, especially our politicians, because they're making decisions based on politics, not what's yeah. necessary. Right. And they're not trained and understand because they've never been in that, as our generals have, that you listen to the guys on the ground. Right. Because that's your best asset. Yep. That's your best knowledge. You can always fix things later. Right. But people right. die. They, you can't fix it after they die. 100%. You know, and I think that was the case. Yeah. Um, you know, because the, every time there was a lull, everybody's thinking, hey, it's over. Okay, good. Yeah. Wait. Then they another attack. No one's thinking of it like we think of it. You right. Know? It's coming. They're just regrouping in this right. matter of time. And right. uh, I think that's really what caused all of the sending things pulling them back as yeah. people were coming turning and redirecting them you know and and there's probably assets out there and locations that if we they would have sent certain ones um from a outside a third party looking at it would say okay well where could have they came from yeah which could give up other things that we don't want to give up right other right. clandestine clandestine bases other things like that that no one needs to know about so you know, it's just. Uh, but these are the these are the tough calls that we're taught to make as mm -hmm. Marines of all different levels and units. Like, hey, bias reaction. And that bias reaction says that when you've got American citizens being killed, being attacked repeatedly, you have to take a certain you, you readjust your risk orientation and you right. do what you have to in order to stop it and bring people home. Well, you know, and there's two units um, that are. Their whole purpose in life, and their Marine Corps units that are basically tasked out to the State Department, mm -hmm. in a sense, their whole purpose in the in that area is to do that: come help, reinforce, rescue, right, exfil, right, uh, embassies and consulates, and that's right. uh, the Security Force Battalion, right, Fast Company. There's right. one in Rota, Spain, and one in Bahrain. Um, I mean. Don't know if there's any truth to it because I haven't been able to validate it 
But I was, uh, I had a gunny uh, come up to me in Vegas. He was drunk, crying, saying he they they uh, wouldn't let him land. Okay. And we like, talked. And he was in the air. He was. They were they over were the top. On-site. Yeah, they were. Because if you really, and it made sense, and there's why. Because if you go back and look at the whole Middle East going on at that time, that di- the whole thing where the story of the um, video come out is. It was a valid concern mm-hmm. to certain people, and it was in Egypt. If you go look at what happened, go check what happened in Egypt that day, mm-hmm. and that's when our embassy in Egypt, in Cairo, was getting protested, and they were yeah. throwing rocks and trying to climb over the walls. Right. Well, what that tells me is that immediately Fast Company, both in Bahrain and uh, Rhoda, are on moving. alert. Yeah, right, right. They pre I guarantee you they all both of them had C one thirties pre staged on the airfield. They had it loaded with ammo and vehicles and everything and you had about forty Marines ready in each one of those to get to wherever they needed to go. Right. And when it nothing happened in Cairo, they started they kinda stood down, but by that they still weren't gonna take the planes off the I mean they're not because it still hadn't totally and that's when Benghazi happened and I mean I'll put it this way without saying anything. If it was me, I would have had one of them come in and land at the uh, military airbase, which was an abandoned military airbase south of Benghazi. Okay. You could have landed a C-130 there. You could have offloaded the Marines. That one would have took off while simultaneously bringing in another one from Bahrain to land at the international airport, do what they do best there, secure the airport, bring that other plane around, land, push the Marines through. Yep. Come to us, find the ambassador, recover, exfil everybody out, and go. Right. Um, Right. Why that didn't happen? Somebody made the call. Yeah. And it was State Department who would have to make that call. Right. You know, did Hillary Clinton? I don't know. But as we also say, as you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah. You can delegate your authority, but you can't delegate your responsibility. 100%. If you tell people to do something, they're doing it in your name. And if they fail, you either fail to train them or you fail to lead them. Right. Or a combination of the two. And so ultimately, you're still responsible. 100%. Yeah, there is no passing the buck off to a subordinate. That means that your subordinate didn't have comms to you. Like, but that's your fault, ultimately, because they were unqualified or you were unavailable. Yeah. Um, or you gave guidance to them such that was so deficient that it wound up in this scenario. Yeah. And the whole thing is is just mind-boggling it t- and i know this is incredibly sensitive but the imagery that came out of the ambassador afterwards mm-hmm. of course was a stain on our nation's legacy there's there's no well and i will give this that didn't he did not get drugged through the streets or anything like that um unfortunately because of the po- the politics of it i think other people got involved from the you know whether i don't know who they were but conservatives mm-hmm. that were trying to amplify things as well um, cause how, what happened, what we found out after the fact is, um, when we were back over at the annex fighting, yeah, one of the neighbors and you saw, there was video out there of a guy while they were pulling the ambassador out of the building, a guy comes up and grabs him. Well, that guy was a neighbor and was a friend of his trying to grab him and him. put him in his yeah. car and okay. took him to the hospital okay. trying to save his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was already dead of smoke inhalation. I mean, right. and. You know, that was probably around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. if not closer to 3, um, because most of the fires were out and all of that kind of thing. Right. And when we were able to get him back to the airport before we left out of there in the morning, and he had all the same clothes on, he wasn't, there was no... Okay. Um, and Tonto and Tig both had looked at him and seen that, that there was no, um, nothing like that happened. Okay. So... I just like to put that out there because no, this is why we're one is the truth and it's two it's people need to know that you know what right. I'm going to call it as I see it. Right, it ain't just one side or the other. Right, no, this is why we're having this conversation. I think it's important to have. Yeah, I think again the saying is that this entire scenario was allowed to go down the way that it occurred. That we lost an ambassador to your point. Mm-hmm. That we lost American citizens who were fighting for their country and trying to keep their fellow Americans safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the. At what point do you then pull out? What or when does it happen? Um, 
our sister team, because the only people that were able to get there was our sister team, um, which was uh, Glenn Doherty was the team leader. They were in Tripoli because we had the same force up there. They came. They were able to acquire a civilian aircraft right. um, from somebody that they had just developed. I mean, yeah. an asset that they had developed that day, and they flew down. Then, I mean, they landed probably about 1 o'clock, 1.15, 1 1.30 in the morning, but they didn't know, none of them had ever been to Benghazi before. Okay. They didn't have vehicles, so they had to negotiate with one of the militias that was there to try to buy their vehicles from them or pay them a ransom or something to get mm -hmm. vehicles and escort it. Mm -hmm. By that time, they showed up. I mean, they showed up. I didn't know Glenn personally. I just knew him by reputation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But he was the one that came up on the rooftop and came over and I met him for about five minutes before he got killed. And uh, he was a former Navy SEAL. Okay. Um, I mean, he, his his legacy is just he was that guy that was in your unit. You always wanted that one guy yeah. that can has the best morale, always bringing people up, but was a gunfighter from heck. Right. And that's what Glenn was. I mean, you know, he's a guy. He was a surfer. He grew up in uh, up in Boston area, but he, okay. he was out with uh, Team 5. I think it was a Team 5. He was a West Coast SEAL. And, okay. I mean, he loved to surf. He loved to do film. I mean... He was just a happy-go-lucky, just good guy, but yeah. he was also a gunfighter and was great at both. Yeah. So, so what time do you actually wheels up, and how does that happen? Um, so they showed up, and then that militia that brought them there left when the gun, the last firefight started. Um, and the iron, here's a little bit of irony is the next one that we got to come in, which was about at 7 o'clock, 7.30, picked us up. Um, helped escort us out to the airport was a Qaddafi loyalist militia. Okay. So the ones that were attacking us were actually one of the were one of the militias that were supported in overthrowing Qaddafi mm -hmm. under the whole banner of Feb 17. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that came in, which shows you the dynamics of what right. the Middle East is like and how complicated it is. Right. Yes. Right. But they escorted us back out, and uh, all of us we couldn't get everybody out at the same time. We got a. Uh, my, the injured, myself, Dave, and then the rest of the non-essential personnel, which were all of those that weren't gunfighters mm -hmm. at that point on that airplane, um, got us loaded up and flew out. And I think we landed in Tripoli probably around 1030-ish. Okay. I don't remember exactly. I was pretty uh, um, in and out of it. I can imagine. Uh, and uh, then the rest of the guys didn't get out till about 1030, and it was a C-130 had landed. And they thought it was a USC-130 finally. And when it came in and parked, it turned and it had a Libyan flag on it, not a uh, American flag. But um, luckily they uh, gave us, you know, the one thing the CIA does is we have a lot of cash. Yeah. And yeah. we were able to make it, um, at least in the financial interest of the pilot and co-pilot and crew chief, and made it good for them to fly them back. And, and that's how we got the last guys out. That's... Um that's an intense and insane and unfortunately an unnecessary story that could have been dealt with so differently. And I think that's why it resonates so hard with Americans mm -hmm. that they can't believe that this is the way this went down. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask you about is the accountability or actually the lack of accountability that was then shown thereafter. Talk a bit about your perspective on that. You know, and because and, at first I'm in the hospital, I didn't really care about any of that. I mean, I was just more Trying worried about getting well. Buddies and yeah. Asking for and, uh, you know, but then you start seeing what they're saying, and it's like we're all looking at each other and talking. It's like, what the heck? That ain't how that happened. They're just taking this down a, a road, you know, and which at first didn't surprise us. But then, you know, when they started kind of, in my mind, at least throwing the ambassador under the bus, not standing up for that. Right. You know, it's like, you know what? If we don't do something, because most of the guys went back to work. Yeah. I ended up coming home. I got home in mid-October. I think it was probably six weeks I was in the hospital. Okay. For six weeks, I finally get home. Um, when I get home, <clears throat> now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to take care of my family now? Is what's starting going through my mind. I know right. I'm not going to be able to go back to work because my... The, the severity of my injuries right. um, and you keep seeing everything on TV and all of that and it's like you know if we don't write a book if we don't put this out ourselves yeah history's gonna forget about it they it's either them get to write it or us get to write it and the only yeah. you know we could go out 
And I thought, because initially I didn't talk to, I didn't even talk to the other guys. I was just, you know what, we need to, uh, this needs to be told. Right. Because if it isn't, then it's going to get lost to what they want. And so we all started talking and basically we all ended up agreeing that let's try to do a book and uh, make sure that it's told the right way. And I knew that it, I thought it would be better to do it all together um, because I had initially had a book contract Okay. to do a biography on my whole life but I turned that down and turned to do it with the guys because I thought it would be better told by all of us because we all were in different spots throughout right. the night right. um, and it'd give a better conclusive you know it'd tell the story best right. and uh, and now it's in a it, I mean you can't throw that book away right. you're the not going to get book. rid of it it's 13 hours 13 hours uh, the true account of what happened in Benghazi right and you're on the other side of I mean this is um Hey, look, I, I ran for the Senate in 2018. I've seen this much, much smaller scale. You get on the other side of a media lie, the tough place to be. And mm-hmm. you will read things in newspapers and be like, couldn't be less accurate. But you see the way narratives are shaped and, uh-huh. uh, and how these things can take over, especially when presidential campaigns are involved and like people are lying on behalf of power. Mm-hmm. It, can get pretty, it can get pretty insane to see that. Oh, yeah. So the yep. decision to fight back and to, to write the book and to be pronounced and telling the truth makes an incredible difference at just punching holes in power. So. Well, and especially with all five of us being a part of it. Yeah. Because, right. you know, if it would have just been, if it would have went through and just been myself or two of us, it would be easy to discredit them. But right. if, when we come out as a team, there's no way you're going to discredit all of us because, you know, it's not... You just don't do right. that. Right. I mean, you know, so it's meant very, a lot. Yeah. There's always usually somebody that's going to come out and say, well, no, it was this. Right. If they were wrong. Right. And together we just knew that we stood stronger. And, um, and right. you know, then it was made into an, in, I mean, Michael Bay chose to make it into a movie, which yep. was phenomenal. And he right. did such a great job with it. Um, you know, he really wanted to uh, do it right. Right. Um, you know, and we even, I mean, kind of tried to get him to throw in some other things um, that would, uh, and he wouldn't do it because he <laughs> wanted to tell the story right. Tell it right. Yeah. So well, I think it's incredibly important he did this because, again, and seeing the way the story was, again, attempted to be twisted, manipulated, put away, the lack of accountability, all things that run directly counter against the training that you and I received and some of the mm-hmm. others did in terms of accountability. Uh, when mistakes are made, that you got to own them, yep. and that if you were in command, that's on you. Like, yeah, yeah, can end your career, but that's the least of your problems. Um, it just needs to be stopped so this doesn't happen again, which is why it's so important to come. Well, and like you said, I mean, and you hit the nail on the head. It's, I mean, you know, the one thing that you have that only you can give up is your integrity. Yeah, I right. mean, your word means something, right? Or it doesn't, right? And if it's so easy to lie, then, you know, and that's, I look at it like that. I mean, because somebody who's a thief and is honest, mm-hmm. you know he's a thief. Yeah, right. Somebody who lies and is a liar, especially a pathological liar, yep. to save their own bacon and throw other people under the bus, that's the worst person in the world. Yeah. Because you never know when that next shoe is going to drop, what the next lie is going to be, right. and what right. the cost is going to be. You know, I mean, right. and, and you know, you get into the spiritual, the religious side of that, and I, I don't mean to say religious because I don't, I'm not a fan of religion because I think that's a man-made thing. Our relationship with the Lord is a personal thing, but um, that's what the devil does: is he lies to us, lies mm-hmm. to us about how we think about ourselves, think about our spouses, think about our kids, think about our country, think about our sit, our fellow citizens. Right. If you listen to that lie, I mean, and that's another reason why I feel lies are the worst thing in the world because you're putting yourself right up there with the devil and you're allowing him to use you to be that. And, uh, you know, and, and that's your integrity. And if you can't have your integrity to your kids and your family or your loved ones, you know, or your fellow people that you work with, I mean, you're willing to give up that. So you'd give up anything. Right. That's worse than, I mean, that's worse than anything, I think. Well, that's why it's so important that you stepped up and told the truth mm-hmm. and that those you served with did the same and put out, again, an unfiltered version of this is what really happened and pushed back. And again, it's not easy to do this given all the organs that are working to yeah. to tell the lie. 
We've talked about a lot tonight, and we've talked about some serious problems that we face as a society. I'm going to ask you to do this tonight when you talk to our audience, which I can hear filling up outside. Talk to me about what gives you a message for our listeners in terms of what gives you hope for the future of this country. Um, you know, I think, I mean, it's the American people, the resilience of the American people. I mean, you know, we right now we're in a time where we have media on both sides of the aisle trying to sway us one way or the other. And they're usually pretty far to the left or the right. And there you have, I mean, it's, we don't have news anymore. We have entertainment. <laughs> um, but I think the, I still have faith in the American people um, because I travel all over the country. And I mean, even during COVID last year, I think I traveled, I, I had over 30,000 flight miles. Okay. Um, and when I'm out talking to the people, I see where their love for the country is, what patriotism is. No matter what side of the aisle they come on, they're just getting misled. And it comes back to that lie, that lie that's being told. And, uh, you know, and, and for me, it's simple. My message to everybody is put God back in things. If you yeah. want to fix it, put the Lord back in because right. he's sitting on the sidelines saying, hey, put me in. Right. And if you read the Bible and you understand what Revelations is, we're not there. You know, all we have done is we've taken him out. And if you take somebody out, there's going to be a void filled right. with evil. I mean, look at what happened when we left Afghanistan. The America come out. Now China and Russia is right in there. They're going to fill that void. And I think that's what's happened here is um, got to quit believing that lie that's being told and not looking to Washington, D.C. to fix your problems. Right. Look to your brother and sister and your neighbor to fix your problems because together we can do it. And keep God in your life, and mm -hmm. things have this way of working out. Take ownership, be there for those that you care about, keep God in your life, and it has this way of moving us forward the way that we should. It does. Right. I mean, you know, it's, uh, um, you never learn anything from wins. <laughs> you never learn anything from, and I, maybe not never, but you don't learn much don't from learn wins. Don't learn the same way. Because right. you're just not, I right. mean, you're just, hey, I won, great. Right. <laughs> it's when you got kicked in the teeth, hamstrung and are down on the ground and that's where we're at right now right. as a country is we're kind of on our knees um fighting against us fighting against each other because of two parties yeah i mean when most of us all want the same thing most of us around the world want the same thing we want our kids to be able to go to school right get a good education not have to worry about getting beat up raped shot blown up we want to earn a decent pay for, you know, do a good job to earn a decent wage and not have the government sticking our hands in our back pocket, taking two-thirds of it out. Right. I mean, life's pretty simple. Yeah. Feel safe when you walk down the street. Right. right? Yeah. You know? Right. And if we all would focus on that instead of what is going on in D.C., because mm -hmm. they want us to look to them. You bet they do. <laughs> because then it makes them feel like they're important. Right. And right. we need to look closer to home, start taking care of our own backyard before we start worrying about them. And if we right. take care of that, our community, our family, and remember what that is, and like you said, put God first, right. um, we'll turn the country around. I agree. Mark, this is great. We are thrilled that you came to Nina. We're thrilled that you did the Right Idea podcast. Your message is an important one for our listeners and for, I can hear them out there. We're expecting hundreds tonight, so we're excited that you're here to share this message all under the mission of fighting for America and yep. giving people the tools they need to go out there and keep the fight going. So thanks for coming, um, and I'm looking forward to your speech tonight. Thank you. Good deal. Everybody take care, and we're signing off from Nina, Wisconsin, and we look forward to seeing you soon on the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us in the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.